0: box you opened it we came You're
1: just a oh no
0: it is a means to summon us
1: welcome to filmstrip's hellraiser series explorers in the further regions of experience demons to some angels to others
0: featuring nick
1: come to
0: and jay this
1: is it the old homestead. These podcasts will be spoiler filled as we discuss the thoughts, characters, and details of the Hellraiser films. Oh, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. Welcome to Film Strip. I'm Jay. And I'm Nick's Innocence. <laughs> And this is our review of Hellraiser 5 Inferno, starring Craig Sheffer, Nicholas Turturro, James Remar, and sort of Doug Bradley. Directed by Scott Derrickson, released in 2000 on a budget of $2 million direct-to-video. Now, we said at the end of the last podcast, these next five are going to be direct-to-video. And we touched on it then, but it's worth mentioning now... You and I have not had the best of luck with sequels that have gone direct to video. In fact, can you think of a good one that we've ever reviewed together or that you've ever seen?
0: Reviewed together, no. I have not. Not We have not. I think the only two that really come to mind are the uh, Critters, the uh, last two, which were direct to uh, DVD. I don't think Blair Witch 2 was direct to DVD, even though I think that should have been. Uh, <laughs> but as far as actually uh, liking a movie that went direct, to video or dvd yeah there is one and actually is a pretty recent release and that is uh the newest chucky movie
1: i would agree with you there yeah that was a very that's a very good one i think that bucks the trend
0: yeah it's the exception to the rule but normally these types of movies i mean i don't want to show my hand too quick but normally these movies uh that are directed there's, there's a reason why they're directed dvd
1: Let's talk about that for a minute, though, but before we get into this movie specifically, and I do have a lot of things I want to talk about in this one. I don't want to tip my hand on it either, but what is it about... horror series that at this point, you know, by the the end of the 90s into the 2000s, they weren't in theaters anymore. Horror was really dead unless you were doing that ironic scream kind of horror, right? So all of these franchises started going direct to video. And, uh, you know, Friday the 13th never did. If Nightmare on Elm Street had been able to continue to do sequels, they probably would have. They stopped at six, uh, you you know, really doing them proper and didn't do another one until, you know, Freddy versus Jason, which was a long time later. So, I, you know, what is it though about uh, the franchises that they want to keep putting them on video? And then what is the stigma about it? Because, you you know, everybody says, oh, direct-to-video, and you automatically get this negative connotation in your head, but yet there seems to be a built-in market for it. I think the
0: built-in market was, at least back in the day, back you know, when we were younger, was the mom-and-pop video stores and the blockbusters. And I think what it was, was these types of movies, even though they were R and horror movies, their main audience was teenagers and maybe even a little bit younger than that. And when you got a rated R movie going on in the theater, you're really going to limit your audience because, I mean, we, you know, we all remember back being, you know, 17 or 16 or 15 and trying to get into a rated R movie and they check your ID right at the door and you couldn't go see it. Seeing so if you're going to go see the Muppets movie or something and trying to sneak in. So, I think what they did is they kind of eliminated that part of their, you know, income or their, you know, how, how they're going to, you know, promote this movie. And they basically just are cutting right to the video because I think the video is where they honestly would see the most money for it. Because, you know, well, I- you, you could always go into a mom and pop store and rent any movie you wanted when you were a kid.
1: Well, that's the thing, though, about this series in particular, Nick. The budgets have never been high. They've never gotten above $9 million to anything I've been able to find in any of these films. And now they're going to do them for really cheap, $2 million. Even in 2000, that's not a lot of money to do any kind of a movie. And I will say now from the outset, what these guys do with $2 million is fairly impressive. Like, that, you know, that could look a lot worse than it does. And uh, sometimes that, that's the knock is like, oh, the budget's not there. They won't have the best of effects and stuff like that.
0: No, I'm just saying a lot of times I like this budget one, especially with like horror movies, and they start giving more and more budget to it, especially like nowadays. Like, what do you think it does? It takes away a lot of the creativity that a lot of these guys have. I mean, you look at the original Jaws. I mean, Jaws is a horror movie. And imagine if like Spielberg had twice as much money. You know, he would have you know been able to make a better shark, which honestly would have took away from the mood of the movie. And I think a lot of times when you're limited with your budget, your creativity comes out.
1: Oh, you've hit on something there that I think is very apparent. And, and I'm going to say now, this series has never had a more talented director than the one it's got in this chapter. I'm a big Scott Derrickson fan. I like everything he's done. Exorcism of Emily Rose is a good rewatch multiple times. Sinister was one of the it was the best film I saw in 2012, hands down. Love that movie. It's not you know perfect or or totally new or unique, but the guy knows what he's doing with a camera. I'm real excited to see. What he's got coming up next, I know he's got some bigger things coming out now. I, he's a good writer and a good director. I'm with you. It, sometimes the too much budget kills the creativity, and and when you get into the fifth installment in a series like this, you got to do something fresh. Like, well, we agreed there's there was nothing left to do to tell the Cenobite story, right? Like, did you want to know what what Kirsty was doing in college now? Because I did. Yeah, I really didn't care about anything with her. <laughs> Yeah, and I didn't want to know more of you know the the boxes backstory because we got all that in space you know so I guess now the thing to know timeline wise is whatever we're doing now as a prequel to whatever happened last chapter partially right I mean that's how this is gonna work now right
0: Yeah, after the last one, I really don't think you could really do a sequel. I mean, it'd be really way in the future. I don't even know what they would even do at that point. You know, Pinhead getting out of the giant space
1: box. They'd have to go get Leprechaun back or something like that. But, you know, I guess before we get any deeper into this, Nick, we do need to tell people what Inferno is about. So if you would, please give us a plot summary.
0: Certainly. Joseph Thorne is an intelligent yet corrupt Denver police detective who regularly indulges in drug use and infidelity during the course of duty. Thorne discovers a strange puzzle box at a murder scene, which he takes home in order to indulge his fascination with puzzles. After solving the box following a fling with a hooker, Thorne begins to experience all kinds of bizarre hallucinations. He makes a connection between the murder he is investigating and a killer known as the engineer, who is suspected of having kidnapped a child. Thorne goes on the search for the engineer who in turn begins murdering Thorne's friends and associates, leaving behind one of the child's fingers at every crime scene. Thorne sees a therapist for his hallucinations, and his psychiatrist ultimately reveals himself to be Pinhead, once using the puzzle box as a portal between his realm and the mortal world. Pinhead tells Thorne that he has, in fact, been in the Cenobite's realm since opening the box originally – Where pinhead has been subjecting him to psychological torture for the various cruelties he's inflicted upon others the engineer is a manifest manifestation of thorn's own cruelty while the child is a personification of thorn's innocence which he has slowly killed through corruption hedonism and violence as hooked chains appear and begin to ensnare thorn pinhead informs him that he will be subjected to an eternity of torment for
1: his sins The end.
0: (laughs) Or is it?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, we can say this now. We'll never see these characters again. I know for a fact none of this ever comes back. But I want to say right off the top, I, I tipped my hand on the fact that I like Scott Derrickson. And the thing I like most about it is the atmosphere he's able to create, the way he uses the camera. This is one of the best looking. It's the best looking of the sequels that I've seen. Uh, It's a real sleek kind of film noir be sheen to it like it knows it's not you know Martin Scorsese or whatever but it's trying to be this old you know 40s detective uh, kind of thing and I, I dug that that scene I like those kind of movies uh, and and I liked the whole aesthetic of the thing the film noir idea I mean if you're gonna reinvent this horror franchise that's you know gone into friggin space and had space mirrors and all that other crap and time jumping last time and all that dogs. stuff you can't go back and do any of that yeah, you, you can't go back and do you know, the dogs from Star Trek Three. You can't do any of that. So you, you don't try to play up the gore. You play up the suspense. I think that's the right choice. I like the aesthetic of the film. Well, to me, it kind of reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the show Twin Peaks. And it kind of
0: had that weird Twin Peaks yes. feel throughout the whole movie. The only thing, though, I will say about the whole feel of it is, my God, the music's bad. I mean, some of the beginning scenes, like you know when he's like, I think it's like his daughter, where he's going up there and like putting his face next or it sounded like porn
1: music. I mean, <laughs> it was just kind of like it does. It does have a a cheap porn sound. I think that's another thing that gets sacrificed in low budgets. Nobody's got any money, so it's just whatever's laying around. I wouldn't be surprised to find out that music has you know been laying around the the studios uh, you know a lot for a long time and wound up getting used in a lot. Of, I mean, dimension. You're talking about Miramax. Here They're going to do everything on the teeth they can. I'm sure Bob and Harvey have found ways to recycle Nathan Hope's score. (laughs) Yeah, that was
0: interesting actually going through the beginning credits and actually seeing their names on it. I'm like, oh, this is a Weinstein movie.
1: (laughs) The funny thing is, and you know, the guy who scored this, you know what he's most known for now? He does scores for like the CSI shows. So, I mean, he, he graduated right into what he was doing here. I mean, He couldn't have picked it any better. I wouldn't be surprised if some of this popped up on some of those little procedural shows. It's possible. And I think that's another reason I'm liking this. It's another reason I'm liking this, Nick. I like Law and Order, SVU, Criminal Intent. I like the first CSI, not all the spinoffs, but I, I like those shows. And actually, I go back to like even the cheesy ones, like Silk Stockings on USA. I don't know if you remember that or not. Maybe a little before your time, but I I like those sort of cheap thrill <laughs> police noir, you know, procedurals. I, I've always gone for them, and I I like the feel of it here. And I'll tell you too, our lead here, Craig Sheffer. I only know this guy from two other roles, (coughs) or actually from three other roles I know he's had. He was the quarterback in the 90s football movie, The Program, right? He hooks up with Christy Swanson. He was the older brother in A River Runs Through It, and then he was one of the uh, only adults to actually have more than a season on One Tree Hill. So I, I know him from that. He's sort of a... I don't know, like a third-rate Clooney, I guess. I don't know how to get this guy, but I think he knows he's he's a cheesy actor and he plays it for all it's worth. I mean, I like this guy. See,
0: I'm going to throw a little bit of Clive Barker at you. I know him from Nightbreed. <laughs> I don't know if you ever ah, remember seeing that movie. Okay, you know, it's an old uh, '80s uh, Clive Barker movie, and um, yeah, he was kind of the uh, he was basically the main uh, protagonist throughout that movie. So it's it's weird seeing him in here, man, because he hasn't aged very well, and he's got a very big head. I
1: was just kind of distracted by. It. He is a huge chrome dome, no doubt. He he would have been a great Destro if they had. How that never happened in the GI Joe films, I'll never know. Nicholas Turturro, though, his per partner. Now that is stunt casting if there ever was any. You know, NYPD Blue. You know, that's really the only famous thing that guy ever did, and he's basically playing the same guy again. He's either that or he plays like a gangster hood. You know, in every film he's in, he probably does like kids films too that I don't see. But I I like these two guys and the way that they. Well, he now, now he's, uh, he, he's like an Adam
0: Sandler it. regular now. Yeah, oh, he's in, uh, that, he was in that so. Here Comes yeah. the Boom movie, uh, you know, the uh, MMA one with uh, the fat guy from uh, King of Queens. Kevin, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah Ke- Kevin Yeah, James. and I'll yeah, yeah, him yeah. Chuck
0: and Larry, he was uh, in The Longest Yard, oh. yeah, he was in all that, but what I actually remember him from was actually uh, World Trade Center, one with Nicolas Cage, the Oliver Stone movie.
1: Oh no, that's Michael Pena. Uh, Was he? Yeah, he was in that
0: too. He played uh,
1: officer Colavito, I believe. Oh, okay. Okay. See, I didn't realize he was in that. But again, another character actor. I think that's the thing. When you got a budget like this, you got to get faces that we're going to recognize. Because it's really the two guys we're going to spend most of the time with are Sheffer and Tachuro, and so we've all seen them in something. You know, you and I picked different things. We've seen Schiffer in and Taturo in here, but they're recognizable, is the point. And they kind of play the same roles over and over. And, you know, Sheffer always plays this guy with a past, or there's more to him than meets the eye, or he's a little darker than maybe you, you know think he is, or he's supposed to be, or whatever. And Taturo's always that, you know, too good for his own good, you know, sidekick, or whatever. I, I don't know. I kind of dug the interplay between those two as partners here and the way they have to play off each other. Because the whole thing is that Sheffer's Detective Thorne is a good cop, a really smart one. Like we learned that he's a. Uh, you know, in, been in, uh, obsessed with puzzles his whole life and stuff, and he's really you know good at figuring things out. But he's got a dark side too. He's got a drug habit. He likes his hookers. He neglects his wife. I mean, he's yeah. Well, who doesn't
0: like that, Jay? <laughs> you ever put together? You ever put together a, a three hundred piece puzzle with a hooker?
1: I can't say that I've done that. Uh, you know, maybe on you know, next year's bucket list, but. Um, <laughs> But uh, I don't know. I, I like the conceits that we're asked to give these things here. Because, I mean, look, all of that is is B-movie tropes, right? You know, oh, the cop that's great at puzzles, I wonder what puzzle he's going to find, right? Like the worst puzzle of all time. But you know that's coming. Like, this is a Hellraiser movie. It's the fifth one, for goodness sakes. We're not uh, setting anything up anymore. You're just waiting for it to happen. And the thing that I will credit this film for and being bold enough to do is not making this about the Cenobites, about their world, their history, their Complex is nothing. They are simply, much like they were in the first movie, just devices here. And I I dug that. I like the fact that this is about, you know, somebody else doing other things and then we watch them basically get punished for it.
0: I think, like, the main thing that's very different about this movie is that instead of it really being kind of a consistent gore movie, especially, you know, with a... Uh you know, four and three and two and even one. I mean, that a really consistent level of gore. Mm-hmm. This one doesn't have that. Now, could that be the budget, or you know, could it be something else here? I mean, I think they're trying to focus more on the psychological elements of this movie more than the actual the physical
1: elements. I, I think you hit on it. I think that, and that is a Scott Derrickson thing. It is a psychological. Terror film is what this is. There's some gore in it, but there's not a lot. And part of it probably is budget, but I've seen Derrickson's other films. He doesn't go for the -the over-the-top gore. It's just not what he does. He would rather... Bends you more on the psychological. It's kind of like the way, and I'm not comparing this film the same level. Don't get me wrong here, but it's sort of the way that like the first Halloween film was all about suspense, and the second one, which was pretty much made by the same people but with more money, was all about the kills and the gore and you know much more blood and stuff like that. This one doesn't have those conceits. It wants to get back to, or it wants to go in a place that this series has never gone. The first film was, I mean, you had a skeleton with skin falling off of it walking around half the time. That was a gory film the second one was gory the third one was really over the top the fourth one was just kind of ridiculous but it was still gory they're not doing gore this time and I think that's a good choice because they're not going to up the gore they can't do that so make it more psychological and again this isn't about the Cenobites it's about this guy and it should be said here too the other big difference here is this isn't about people Exploring hedonism and, you know, pain and pleasure on a different realm. This is about a very Protestant Christian idea of what torment and Hades and hell and all that is about. And Scott Derrickson will tell you. I mean, that's his background. That's what he believes. And, you know, uh, Clive Barker hates this movie because it's not his vision. And Derrickson said, well, that's because he doesn't believe what I believe. And, you know, I wanted to make the Hellraiser movie that was the kind of hell I grew up, you know, learning about in church and stuff. And I think that's exactly what he goes for. I mean, if you grew up hearing all that like I did, and a lot of our listeners probably have, this is going to seem really familiar. This is how torment plays out. In a lot of ways, it's this uh, you know constant struggle to find answers to questions that you, you don't want the answers to because you're the problem. And I think that's the other big difference here. This isn't about, again, exploring some new uh, fangled way of getting off. It's about being you know held accountable for the shitty life you've led. Well,
0: I think it's kind of interesting you kind of bring it up, the whole, like, you know, envision, you know, people, how they envision hell. And that's always been kind of one of the tropes I've heard growing up is that hell is repetition. And that's what I think kind of this movie gets at, at least with the ending here, is that this version of his hell is just over and over and over again. You're going to have to live this whole thing over again. And that's kind of what they're building throughout this whole movie is just this like repetition and something you can't escape and something that, you know, you know what the outcome is going to be, but it's like you can't escape it. And no matter how many different ways you try, it's always going to be the same result.
1: Yeah, because what happens essentially is he goes on, he finds this puzzle box at a murder victim's house and it happens to be a guy he went to high school with. And so he starts doing a little research into it, goes and meets up with one of his favorite hookers. They do some blow, get it on. He opens the box and then wakes up and the adventure begins. But what we really know is that he gets torn apart. And his soul being torn apart is having to go on this endless journey to find this great killer or whatever, you know, the engineer and all that. And like we said in the plot summary, uh, that's just the manifestation of all his personality. You know, the the dark side of him is killing the innocent side of him. That was the good side, right? And he has to keep doing that over and over. And the last shot is him sitting on his uh, his kid's bed just weeping openly because he knows I'm going to have to keep doing this over and over again.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, that is what, you know, this version of hell is, like I was saying. I mean, it's just this constant repetition, and it's just going to basically cause him to go insane eventually. It's just his type of torture where, you know, what I think they're kind of getting at here is that maybe when this box is opened up, it's not the same for everybody. I mean, you look back in the first movie, and right. look his hell, uh, you know, um, Frank, you know, like, What he was after was, you know, he was after all this, like, you know, type of, you know, sensory sensory overload is basically what he was looking for. And his hell, I think it was that they were taking it the opposite way there. That instead of being extreme pleasure, is going to be extreme anguish and despair and, you know, just being, you know, tormented with what you wanted. And it's almost like the same way here where now this is his own personal hell. It's not the same for everybody.
1: I think you've hit on something there. It's different for everyone. It's built around what your decisions, your life was all about. Frank was trying to experience everything sexually in the world that he could. And he, you know, finally got to the point where it essentially just tore him apart and he had to build himself back together by others' blood. You know, he drove other people to kill and that's you know, that's what he did with the, the wife, the brother's wife and stuff well this cop's whole life we find is built on lies and (coughs) sentence excuse me Setting people up, uh, you know, ignoring his child, uh, his wife, you know, cheating on her. All, you know, he's not a bad guy per se. Like he's not a corrupt cop. He's not Vic Mackey or something. But he's also somebody that's blurred the lines so long that now he he you know he's caught in his own web. That's the point, right? And that would be this guy's personal hell. And for me, Nick, I, I like the idea that this is what the Cenobites do. They take the things that you were all about, and they give it a twist in your afterlife to make it torture for you. I think that is a grand idea, and I think it's something that's been there that they've just never explored before. I think you're right there, but, you know, I think they're also
0: kind of maybe changing the, you know, modus operandi of the Cenobites. Because, you know, like, when you look at the first movie, kind of like, they were just basically... uh devices of pleasure and torture you know just like taking your body to the extreme and it kind of like morphed throughout the series and you know now we're here where it's, it's a little bit different but i think you gonna you're, you have to change what they're about because you can't keep on making movies about the same thing over and over again because really what would it be i mean it would be someone opening up the box trying to experience this and them just tearing them apart you're gonna have to turn and you exactly. have to him into kind of a you know, he's got to be a villain, but it's almost like a... He's not really... I guess you wouldn't call a villain, just more of like a force of nature in this movie where it's... You call it, a, you call it. You know, whether you want it to or not, and then he just does what he does. There's no, like, ill will in what he does. It's just his job. And I think it's just kind of a different... It's a kind right. of interesting way of kind of redoing his character. And I think you could, almost with all these movies, you're going to have to somewhat change these characters because even if you do the same type of thing again in the next movie which I don't even know what's about but they do the same thing in the next movie it's just going to get boring so I kind of like that they are changing him kind of throughout each movie
1: Yeah, and I like that too. That's the thing. And you know what's funny about this is that this has a lot of mixed reviews out there. Like, like I said, Clive Barker hates this mostly because it interjects things he doesn't believe in personally. Well, let's put it on the table, dude. Clive Barker is a
0: pretty messed up guy, if you know anything about him.
1: (laughs) Well, he's 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 a different cat, that's for sure. You know, but but he definitely is not he doesn't share the same beliefs about uh, life and particularly the afterlife that Scott Derrickson does. And on the other side of that, Doug Bradley hates this one too, mostly because he's not really in it and it's not about him. And I, and I, and he'll admit that, that, you know, he didn't really see what his point was and that eh, he's welcome to say that or whatever. But again, I'm, I like the idea that we're going to reinvent the Cenobites sort of every time we're going to give it a different spin. And if you're going to do that, you've at least got to have, protagonist that i'm gonna go along with i'm interested to watch this guy work through this murder mystery like that's the interesting thing about this i watched this twice for this review nick and the first time through i'm i'm going with the It because like i said in, in the opening i like whodunits i like the figuring out police procedural stuff and i like going back to them and seeing if i can pick it up along the way because you know in the back of your head all along the, the cinebites are behind all of this and, and especially when he starts getting those uh, uh, visions, which we'll talk about. In the, <coughs> excuse me, which we'll talk about in a second. But it's watching them unfold and watching it all come together. I don't know. I thought that was really cool. And I, for me, I was going with this one a lot easier than I was. The last one, like the third one, I kind of enjoyed because it was just ridiculous, and it just had this late, you know, early nineties thing <laughs> that it was all about. That last one just was so it was so stupid that I just I just kept waiting for it to you know get anywhere. This one I was hooked
0: on the story. Well, it's got a completely different feel, like as we were talking about. It's like you said, it's it's a mystery. It's kind of like almost like a mystery with expectations, though, because. Like I said, you kind of, you got the first four movies and you know a lot about the Cenobites, you know their history and stuff like that, but now you're seeing something completely different with them. You know they're behind it, but you're kind of trying to figure out what's going on. You're one step ahead of the character, but even being one step ahead, you're not really sure of what this plot's about or, you know, kind of what's going on, especially like, you know, the fingers and the engineer. I mean, we've heard the name the engineer before in the past, so it's kind of like putting these weird type of, you know, like expectations almost on there, and they're using that against the audience in a way where it's, again you're expecting one thing and you're not getting it. So it's kind of keeping you on edge throughout. Because, you know, you think thinking Hellraiser, you're thinking chains, you're thinking hooks, you're thinking people getting torn apart. You're thinking of, you know, these grotesque creatures. And based on the third one, you know, guys that are kind of mixed with weird stuff, you don't even get that here with these Cenobites. I mean, the Cenobites are all kind of back to the, uh, you know, BDSM type of, you know, look with the uh, leather. And none of them have eyes, too, I noticed. Is that how... Yeah, all the pen is the only one. I don't yeah. know what that's about though. I mean, what do you what do you think that's about? You know, I mean I think that was obviously a deliberate intention of them was not
1: to have these things have eyes and if all of these things are a are in some way a manifestation of Thorne's subconscious and, and his actions and stuff, he lives in the shadows, in the dark. He doesn't want anybody to notice what he is, but he wants everyone to be at his Pleasure at his, you know, command or or beckon or whatever. And the cenobites we see here, I mean, there's the two female ones who basically like they they make out and grope with him, but then they like put their hands under his skin and his chest. It's, it's the goriest thing they do in the whole film. And then there's that like that half cenobite that's sort of crawling around on his legs and his torso or his arms and his torso, but no legs and stuff. Like I don't I don't know what that one's about, but I took the two women in particular to be. You know, he's got this, this wife and this daughter that he really loves, but to him, women are just, just objects and he just wants them to just, you know, cover your face and just pleasure me. And that's what they serve. That's how I read it.
0: Yeah. Almost kind of like maybe, you know, you got all these things in your life and they're doing stuff for you, but they don't see you for who you really are.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a good way of saying it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. it's just, it was just really interesting. I thought, you know, with the way the Cenobites look, because they all look kind of similar with, you know, the shaved head, no eyes. But then they all had like kind of exaggerated like mouths and like, you know, long tongues. And the only buddy that was really familiar, obviously, was Pinhead, which, you know, we kind of got to, we got to bring, obviously, got to bring him up. And there wasn't much Pinhead in this movie. I mean, he was kind of a hidden character.
1: I was okay with that though, because what I was trying to figure out was who in this guy's life is Pinhead. And I think I figured out it was the doctor early on. Like, it just seemed to be an obvious one. I was like, it's either that or it's the wife that doesn't seem to know anything. The partner was my third guess, but I didn't think Tatura would be that guy. So I I, I figured it was going to be the doctor. And I can't say this. I love the reveal of Pinhead when it finally comes out here. You know, Thorne looks at him and says, You're the engineer. And as his face is, you know, lighting up and morphing, he says, It's as good a name as any. In other words, like, I don't really have a name and I don't really need one. You know, I'm just the demon of. of pain and pleasure essentially i i like that i i like the fact that there's not a lot of pinhead air. i didn't need a lot of pinhead anymore i i get what he's about i want to see him do his thing and hey, he does a pretty good job of doing it
0: here yeah definitely i think he was meant meant to be the doctor just because of the way that the uh, psychiatrist is kind of uh you know touching on his psyche and what's going around and that's obviously what pinhead's doing throughout this is he's Setting up these chain of events and characters and situations based on the psyche and based on what he's done, and I think this is kind of a representation of who the doctor is or what a psychiatrist is really. So it was, it was a little, it was an interesting reveal, but I did see it coming too, because it was after a while, it's like, eh, we haven't seen Pinhead, but. He's obviously here somewhere, and it's like, ah, I think it's probably the doctor. And it turned out it was so
1: well. What did you make of the Cenobites, particularly? What's that half man one that sort of ran? I've given you what I thought the two females were. What was that other one?
0: I really don't know what that one was. I mean, I obviously, you know, they're taking back the uh chatterer type uh, you know, Cenobite that seems to be one of the more popular incarnations of these uh creatures, I think, with the chattering teeth. I don't know if he's supposed to be just maybe meant to be like a child in a way or something like that. Kind of like this, you know, being that's only half developed, you know, kind of like a child is and stuff. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of how I took it is that maybe if the two females are, you know, his two halves of his, you know, sex life or whatever you want to call it, then maybe that that one right there at the bottom of the stairs that we would first see it it kind of represents his kid. And the fact that, you know, he's kind of leaving this thing kind of
1: like half developed and, you know, unwilling to you know help it at all and stuff i mean that's kind of how i it. Uh, that's a very interesting way of reading it i think it's open to interpretation i haven't seen anything or read anything where that was answered i think it's le- uh, derrickson's noted for putting things in there that are like well what you know, what do you think it is he's a deconstructionist i mean he knows that so he likes to leave you with that i dug the cinnabite hallucinations i thought it let us know early on that if you're going to be surprised and you know remotely pissed off the fact that this turns out to be you know it's all in his head kind of thing because that is a trope of horror movies and a lot of times i don't like that but you know if you're going to do that at least give us clues to along the way where we have to go yeah yeah that's fine but get back to the mystery you know like i i kind of like the fact that they played that hand early to let us know now you you folks know this is all in his head but Can you figure out why? And I I like how it sort of unfolded. I love the engineer mystery. Like, just as a police procedural, I think you could probably fan edit this thing, cut out all the Cenobite stuff, and you'd have a pretty... um, (coughs) Excuse me. You'd have two-thirds of a really gory, you know, kind of a police thriller out there. You know, you would be no way to wrap it up now, but I, I kind of dug that part of it. Did you? Yeah, I liked it because it was just a change of pace. I mean, I kind of wanted
0: this movie, expecting it to be kind of another Hellraiser, you know, hell on Earth type thing where you're going to have this guy, and, you know, it's going to be Hellraiser, you know, maybe uh, Pinhead hunting him throughout the movie and stuff. And I guess, Like I said, it was kind of nice to see it kind of change a little bit. Now, you know, going forward, I don't want to see this type of movie in everyone. I kind of hope that they kind of, you know, maybe pull like a Marvel type, you know, Disney thing where you're almost getting like a different type of movie every time. And I kind of, I guess, I kind of hope where, where I guess where I'm hoping this series kind of goes, where everyone you're going to get, you know, a decent director and then they're going to give their own spin on the uh, Pinhead, you know, Hellraiser, Cenobite mythos. And I think that's
1: kind of an interesting way to take this take this series at least. I agree. I don't need something that is going to connect together. I don't need connective tissue. I think we've done that for you know two, three chapters already, you know, maybe four, if you want to try to stretch it like that. I don't, I don't want that either. I, I want to have standalone stories that can stand on their own. And so far, this one does. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you look at horror movies, and I think kind of the
0: best, at least my favorite horror movies are, are anthologies. Is I like the whole, like, you know, you got these different stories, and they might share some of the elements, but they're completely different stories that stand on their own, and aren't those kind of the best type of movies that they don't rely on the ones that
1: came before it? Oh, well, that's the problem in slasher series, isn't it? That they get so caught up in their own stuff that they can't tell the story anymore. Like, I love the Halloween series, and I can make defenses for all of those, but I'm not too above it to be able to tell you that that thing gets ridiculous with its own mythology about why he tries to whack his whole family out. You know, I mean, that, that... is dumb you know Freddy's thing was that way too. It was the all curse about of Freddy. It's yeah. Well, I mean, you you had Freddy and all of his descendants were the only ones that could kill him. And then Jason was all about Crystal Lake and all kinds of random stuff. I mean, all those films get caught in that trope. And I'll give Hellraiser credit for not getting caught into that at this point so far, like they were getting dangerously close that whole La Machard box and all that stuff. Last time I thought they keep going down this road. This is like leprechaun territory.
0: The problem when they do that too. I mean, you talk, you talk about Hellraiser is, you know, kind of even like, not I mean you talk about Halloween and the first Halloween movie had a very simple pre- premise to it where, you know, it's just this kid who kills his sister and the guy's evil and he gets out. That's the whole plot of the movie. And as you get in the later ones, you know, then it's like, whoa, let's explain why he killed him. Oh, it was a curse. He was, you know, cursed to do it. And why did this curse exist because of this? And it's just like, it's the George Lucas effect is what I always say. It's like they go back and they try to, like, explain stuff or they try to, like, you know, take stuff that you thought was cool and then just completely overexpose it. And it's just like when you start doing that, that's why Darth Vader is not cool you know, it's not cool when he's a freaking kid or when he's a little whiny teenager because that's not what you like. I mean, and that's kind of what I'm kind of glad with Hellraiser is they could have easily taken this back and like did like, hey, let's do one with, you know, Spencer as a, you know, a war guy or something and him going up against someone and we're going to totally overexpose Pinhead and, you know, explain away everything in his character. I think so far, you know, even like in part three, it's like they kind of cross that line where they're explaining a little bit too much. But I think that's kind of nice here where they kind of like drew it back a little bit. And it's like, you only get little bits of pinhead, which I think is good. I think, I think when you show him too much, he loses a lot of that impact.
1: Yeah. I'll, I'll give you two examples here. Like the, one of the reasons to me, the dark Knight stands up as a, an entry in the Batman film lexicon or whatever is because of the way, uh, Heath Ledger played the Joker. And the fact that he, didn't have a chance to do anything else on top of it. I mean, that's it. And I, I'll i be honest with you, I would have hated it if he had been around for The Dark Knight Rises. It would have lessened the impact that he had on that that film. Like, it's too much. And, and I'll go back to something you mentioned earlier here, too. Jaws is a great example of this. That first movie is about a guy getting over his fears. That's what it is. It's about Brody. By the fourth one, it's like the shark has a vendetta against the Brody family and follows them to the Bahamas. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? The the more bloated the the inside story gets. And I think the the problem with a lot of these people that put out these films, and particularly the producers, the studios that own them, is they think, well, this is what people want. And with something like Friday the 13th. It can be fun because you just make it funny. You make it about Jason killing people that everybody hates, you know. But And that's a a series that doesn't take itself so seriously, so that one survives on that. But like, you know, the Freddy movies, they they got really goofy and serious by that fifth and sixth one. He was having kids and the Catholic nuns and all kinds of weird stuff was going on there. It was too much.
0: Well, that's what happens when you run out of ideas. I mean, it's like you, you take something.
1: And you go back. You have to bring other people in, not part of the original creative team, who have interesting ideas. And I give it to Miramax and Dimension for grabbing Derrickson and knowing, look, this guy is smart. He's doing good stuff. The thing he did right after this, the next big film, was Exorcism of Emily Rose. And the reason he got that gig is people saw this and they said, this guy can do... Dramatic thriller, and if you watch that film as just a dramatic thriller and not an exorcism movie, it's a really good courtroom drama, and he gets a lot out of the performances there. i, I Again, I, I I like the way the conceit <clears throat> of the aesthetic here, the storyline, and how he's directing this, and he co-wrote this too. I mean, you know, it, it's his vision. I'm digging the whole idea here. And I like the mystery of it. And I love the way that it reveals itself. Like, you know, this is all in Thorne's head somehow, but how does it all work out? And I love the idea that the, the fingers that they're finding, that they you know they have no uh, fingerprints because the engineer's licking the ends of them and it like burns them off or whatever, that it's it's the childhood version of him. It's his innocence. And he's finger by finger cutting his innocence away. I mean, that's a real, that's kind of messed up, right? I mean, that that. That's a good a payoff. Yeah,
0: it is. I mean, it's kind of a split, you know, when they show, like, you know, this is you now, and this is you, and, you know, you're younger, you're innocence, and then this is kind of like what you become. It's kind of a little interesting way of doing it. I mean, I'm trying to think of what it's like. Oh, shit. I mean, it, it's almost kind of going back to the Hellraiser 3 type thing where they kind of split Pinhead up where it's kind of like the good and the bad right there where they're kind of like showing – showing how basically how his self how his corruption how what he became has basically killed what he was
1: i think it's borrowing from something even even bigger than that nick remember back to our Stephen King retrospective when we did those things remember the shining the the Kubrick film the one of the reasons we liked it is that you could you could watch that film and if once you know how it goes you like watch Nicholson just completely fall apart and what you come to realize is that he's messed up at the beginning of it and that the hotel just brings it more and more out of him and it's just you know all these different pieces that's why that works. Stephen King did that throughout all of his films right remember Christine right like it, it, everything that Arnie ultimately did was something he wanted to do. He just didn't have any courage to do. Well, Christine just gave him the impetus to do it, but all that, you know, all the people that Christine kills are people that pick on Arnie. Right. And, and that's the same thing here. It's everything that's happening is thorns responsibility and fault. And he is at fault for everyone that is, you know, being killed for everything that he has ruined because he wanted it both ways. He wanted to have the family, and be this respected member of the community and a police officer. But he also wanted his hookers and his blow and to be able to beat up suspects and, and you know, be dirty hairy. And, well, you can't have it both ways. And that that's, that's true. Yeah. No,
0: I definitely, definitely agree. Yeah. And, you know, it's like I said, it's, it's an element I really liked in the movie, too, where it's, you know, just kind of like throughout this whole movie, it's almost like every time one of these people are killed, he's losing a little bit more of his innocence himself. And that's why, you know, the fingers representing and everything and that, you know, that his his corruption is, you know, whatever you want to call it, is what's taken away and what's killing them.
1: Well, I mean, even the big reveal at his house when his family is dying and, you know, they bring back that pillar You know, from the first and the second and the third film and stuff. And they hang the kid and the wife on the pillar while it's snowing in his living room. And it's essentially saying to him, you are crucifying your own family. See, you are their demise. This is your fault. And he still doesn't take responsibility for it. You know, that's the kick of that that scene. I love that. That's great imagery. It was very, very cool stuff. And again, we've talked about the ending, but I really like the fact that, you know, he being tortured and he wakes up and the hooker's alive everything's cool he gets the heck out of there goes to work the next day and he gets the phone call that started the mystery the first time around again and he told this story early on i mean this is you know screenwriting one-on-one about the the guy that uh you know kept getting felt like he was uh reliving the same day over and over again so he finally just shot himself well he pulls a gun out and shoots himself and what happens he wakes back up in the bathroom and that's when he realizes I'm in, you know, I'm in hell. Yeah. Basically, I love, I love that. That was great. And there's no Andy McDowell this time. <laughs> well, I, you, would that be worse than where he was? I don't know. That's debatable. But
0: <laughs> maybe. I think I think Andy to McDowell would make it more scarier, but that's just me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> maybe one day we'll get to our Groundhog retrospective and we can debate that further. But yeah, well, Nick, I think we're at the point of the podcast. We're fi- uh, time to give our final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So, what are yours for Hellraiser Five Inferno?
0: I don't know what to expect coming into this movie. Like I said, you know, during the cast is that I was kind of expecting maybe something along the ri- lines of. You know, Hellraiser 3 with, you know, the, kind of the over-the-top uh, Cenobites and, you know, just kind of more of a action-based, you know, maybe, you know, more gore or whatever, you know, just trying to, you know, up the ante and everything. And actually, I was surprised to see this movie was more subdued. I mean, it was almost, uh, you know, a movie we haven't talked about here, but it's like a movie like The Wolverine. It's like you see movies like all the other X-Men movies with the big spectacle, then you go see this movie that's much more smaller and much more intimate, and that's basically what kind of what you get here. Is something that's a little bit more personal, a little bit more intimate, and you know, it's it's kind of cool with like the whole detective mystery thing, you know, plot added onto here. It just it it makes for a more satisfying viewing of this because it's not your typical Hellraiser movie, it's not your typical slasher movie, it's a psychological movie, and I think that's kind of cool that they took this series in a different direction. And I guess that's kind of what I'm hoping for next. You know, next time we do this is. Then maybe Hellraiser 6 takes it in another direction I wasn't expecting. So in the end, I'm going to give it... mm, it's, It's not quite a large popcorn. It's strong, medium popcorn. I can't give it a large because I don't think it's better than one or two. But it's probably the third best. It's the, easily the third best one in the series. So it's a strong medium popcorn
1: for me. Nick, I, I agree with everything that you've said there. I didn't know what to expect coming into this or whatever. And I was thrilled with everything I got. I think I've made that really clear. Here. I mean, I watched the thing twice for this. I don't own any of these movies, you know, but I own this one now because I will watch this one again. I think the first one is horror movie homework. You got to see the first tail There's nothing like it. It was unique at the time and it, it's, it's its own thing. This film is not the same kind of movie as that. It plays in the same world, but it's not the same kind of film. And if you want that, you're expecting the wrong thing. This to me is way better than the third and the fourth one. And it's even better than the second one. I think that the second one got a little off track and a little crazy there. I enjoyed the heck out of this. And even for its low budget and B quality, I, I went with it. It's, you know, porn sheen, uh, um, cinematography and soundtrack. I, I dug it. I dug the story. I liked the, the twist. And I, I like the way it's done. I, this, to me, is a strong, large... I would have no problem telling people, look, if you've seen the first Hellraiser movie, you never bothered with the sequels, just watch this one. I mean, this is just a good movie by itself with a little Hellraiser on top of it. Again, I think it could have just been a movie called Inferno and never had the Cenobites ended if somebody had wanted to do that.
0: You know, that's very strong possibility there, Jay. You know, you always hear a lot of times with these movies like... They just kind of pick a script and then kind of throw John McClane into it. It could possibly be the same thing on this one. I Actually, I was looking that up to see if this was a different script and that they kind
1: of, you know, threw some pinhead in into it. And I couldn't find the answer. This was a, a basic story outline that Derrickson and the guy he co-wrote it with had. They didn't have it finished. And they said, hey, we want you guys to take on the next Hellraiser movie. And they said, well, what if we take this thing we've already got and meld it with that? So it's sort of that way, but it's not exactly. like They they purposely said, okay, well, if we're going to do Hellraiser, how do we want to do it? And then they adapted from there. But I think the next entry and one of the other later ones, that's exactly what happened. And we'll talk about that when we get there. But, yeah, that, that does happen, and it's always interesting to note. But, again, I like this. I give it a strong large popcorn. It's the best of the sequels so far, and I'm with you. I have high hopes now for where we're going next because I I don't know, and I want to find out what's up in Hellseeker, Secret, but we'll have to do that next time around. Folks, thanks for joining us on this latest episode of Filmstrip. You can find all of our back catalog at our website, continuousplaypodcast.com. Click on the button that says Movies. Find all of our stuff there. We've talked about a lot of the stuff we reviewed here. Hook up with us on Facebook and Twitter. Leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think. Till next time, for Nick, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Visit our website, continuousplaypodcast.com, for more reviews and episodes. Now you must come with us. Taste our treasures. All content used or discussed in this podcast are the property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17.